The recording that you're about to listen to is a talk from the City Bible Forum. We would appreciate you respecting our copyright by not making copies of this talk or altering the content in any way. We hope that you find the material beneficial. If you would like more information on the City Bible Forum, you can visit us on the web at citybibleforum.org. Well, Chinese people are funny because Chinese people never talk about sex. But as someone once pointed out to me, they must be having sex because there sure are a lot of them in the world. Now, Australians do talk about sex, but maybe they're not having much sex. In a recent survey of 1,000 married Australians, they found that in that 1,000, uh, 600 married Australians have sex only once a month. 100 in that 1,000 have not had sex in over a year. And 600 in that 1,000 say, yeah, they do have sex, but it's very routine, same old, same old, same old. So today our topic is sex. Our question is this, how can we have extraordinary sex when love has gone cold? So welcome again to our May series of talks. Our topics are, we're looking at justice, sex, wealth and respect. And each week, one by one, we'll go through these topics, see what the Bible has to say in particular the book of Ecclesiastes, and this will come in the form of a 20-minute talk from me now, followed by about 10 minutes of question and answer from you guys. So today our question is sex. How can we have extraordinary sex when love has gone cold? And this is what the Bible says about sex. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. If two lie down together, they will keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? So this is poetry. It's nudge-nudge, wink-wink language. It's talking about love romance and sex, saying, hey, it's a good thing, hey, at least it keeps you warm. So if sex and love and romance are a good thing, why is so little of it happening? And so today we'll look at that, and you see the outline in front of you. In the first part of my talk, we'll look at the relationship between sex and love. In the middle part of the talk, we'll look at, well, why isn't much sex happening? And in the final part of the talk, well, what are some suggestions? What are some things that the Bible says? So let's begin with the first part of the talk. What's the relationship between love and sex? And we're looking at this from a psychology and physiological point of view. Now, a few years ago, I went to a friend's place for dinner, and they served some cheesecake, homemade cheesecake. And I was eating the homemade cheesecake, and I thought... This one's a little bit different. So then I asked for the recipe. They said, oh, you know, we make a topping, we make a biscuit base, but for the middle, we've decided just to use this, straight butter. And I thought, oh, I'm eating a slab of butter. And I could feel the chest pain coming on, the arteries clogging. But as we know, there are three layers to cheesecake, and there's three psychological components to sex, love, and romance. The top layer is attraction. So this is the physical erotic attraction. In the middle layer, we have companionship. So this is, hey, we're an item, we're companions, we hang out together. Uh, And so I language turns to we language. Instead of saying, I took her to the movies, it becomes, we went to the movies. And in the foundational layer, there's commitment. Maybe they're promises, vows that we will be committed to each other, and maybe we'll even be exclusive. And we need all three psychological components for a loving, romantic relationship. If all we have is attraction, psychologists point out this only lasts one or two years and then it fades. If all we have is companionship, 
well, really, this is just a friendship. How is this romantic? This is just the friend zone. And if all we have is commitment, well, this is just like a business contractual relationship. We're talking about duty and obligation. And by itself, it's just pretty cold and dry. So we need all three components for a loving, romantic relationship. And the anthropologists agree at even a neurophysiological level. This is Helen Fisher. She says this is what happens in love and romance. The motor part of our brain is attracted to someone and then we're aroused and then we have sex and then we have orgasm. And at that point you have these powerful neurotransmitters being released, vasopressin, oxytocin and dopamine. And these neurotransmitters make us committed to the person. And so sex and commitment are very related at a psychological and physiological level. We have sex with those we're committed to and we're committed to those we have sex with. Of course it doesn't have to be that way. You can try to have sex with someone you're not committed to and not be committed to someone you have sex with. And this is Zana Vrangelova and she is on a campaign to campaign for casual sex where we should just be able to have sex without being committed to the other person. But even she concedes there are many hurdles to overcome if you try to just have casual sex. She says she even concedes at a neurochemical level you will be powerfully attracted to the other person and want to be committed to this person. She concedes that there will be these uh, problems that you have with casual sex that you don't have so much with sex with someone you're committed to. Uh, Examples such as sexually transmitted diseases, unwanted pregnancies, a high rate of depression and anxiety, and you might even fall in love with the other person. So they're hurdles you might have to overcome. She she also says um, with casual sex compared to sex with someone you're committed to, uh, there's a much larger orgasm gap. The woman is much less, less likely to have an orgasm in casual sex. And with casual sex as compared to sex with someone you're committed to, when you're having sex with someone you're committed to, Alcohol is involved only 5% of the time, but with casual sex, alcohol is required 90% of the time. So that's one of the cruel ironies, that sex is meant to be something sensual, and yet with casual sex, you need alcohol to almost numb the senses, uh, to, to dull the sensual pleasure. And so like it or not, anthropologists, physiologists, and psychologists all agree that we are wired in such a way to have sex with someone we're committed to and to be committed to someone we have sex with. But at this stage we're saying, well, I am in a committed relationship. Why is so little sex happening? And this comes to the middle part of the talk now. Why is so little sex happening in a committed relationship? And there are usually three problems. First problem is this. The passion usually fades with time. Now, a few months ago I bought myself a case of Coke Zeros and then when I opened the Coke, nothing. I was expecting pss, you know, explosion of fizz and flavour, but I got nothing. And that's when I looked at the bottle and went, hang on, they've sold me some old Coke. It's past its use-by date. It's got no fizz, no flavour. That's why they call it Coke Zero. <laughs> but with time, you know, the Coke fades. There's no fizz, there's no flavour. And it's the same with a a romantic, loving relationship. With time, psychologists all agree, after one or two years, uh, no matter how initially attracted you were to the other person, you won't be as attracted and they won't be as attracted to you. The passion just fades after one or two years. And so we have commitment, we might have companionship, but there'll be no attraction in the relationship. 
So that's the first issue. The passion fades. The second issue is this. We have these competing, contradictory desires in a loving relationship. Now, in our first few years of marriage, my wife and I used to move house a lot. We used to move from rental property to rental property. So we had to move furniture a lot. And that's when we realised my wife and I are completely incompatible when it comes to moving furniture. What she has crystal clear in her mind is not what I have crystal clear in my mind. So we'll be holding furniture, trying to get it through a door or maybe around a hallway. She wants to move it up. I want to move it down. She wants to rotate clockwise. I want to rotate counterclockwise. And so we're actually always competing against each other. We have these contradictory desires. Now, Esther Perel, in her work, says the problem in a loving relationship is we actually have two competing contradictory desires. We have a desire for safety and reliability in our companion. And I'm using a minivan to represent this because a minivan is safe, reliable and practical. It's got the... The sliding doors. And I'm at a stage of life right now where I'm just lusting after those sliding doors. And this represents what we look for in a companion in our relationship. We want safety, reliability, predictability, permanence, routine, uh, security, a home, somewhere, someone to settle down with. That's what we look for in a companion. But this is what we look for in a lover. And I'm using the bad boy sports car here. We want danger. We want excitement. We want mystery. We want adventure. We want the journey. We want the travel. And so now we're asking a relationship to do both, to be safe and dangerous, to be routine, to be mystery, to be reliable, and also to be surprised. So these are competing desires we're asking for in the one relationship. And we're asking for these two competing desires in the one partner, the one person. During the day, we're saying, I want you to be reliable, dependable. I want you to pick up your clothes from the floor. I want you to pay the credit card bills. I want you to be the accountant in my life, basically by day. But by night, I want you to be dangerous, wild, exciting, a risk taker. I want you to be a pirate, a superhero, a crime fighter. And one person can't juggle these two competing desires. This is too much to ask from one relationship. And so Esther Perel, as a side note, says this is why affairs happen. Affairs can happen in a very happy relationship where you're very happily committed to the other person because now you're looking for an adventure, for wildness, for danger, for excitement that's just not there in your happy, committed relationship. And you can be very happy with your partner, but you might not be happy with yourself. And you start saying things like, I don't like who I've become. Uh, I've become dull, boring. There's a routine in my life. I need to be free. I need to be wild. And so it's a search for a second adolescence. Maybe it's a search for an adolescence we never had. But I just don't like who I've become. I need to be me. I need to be free. I need to live for myself now. So it's a search for danger and excitement that is no longer there, or, 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 or which may once have been there, but it's no longer there. All right, so that's the um, second reason uh, that, that excitement might fade. The third thing is this. We, there's actually an asymmetry... In desire. There's an asymmetry in desire. I love watching young couples when they're dating. When young couples are dating, it's like they're in 
Disneyland. And they go, oh, look, we're perfect for each other. We love doing the same things. We love eating in restaurants together. We love watching movies together. We love romantic walks by the beach together. And I say, of course you like the same things. Who doesn't like eating in a restaurant? Who doesn't like watching movies? Who doesn't like going to a beach? It's easy to be compatible when you're dating because all you're doing is eating and going to the movies and going to the beach. Wait till you get married. Because when you get married, you're no longer in Disneyland. Now you're running a small business together. Because it's all about cash flow. It's all about human resources. Whose turn is it to pick up the kids from school? It, it's all about rosters. Like, whose turn to unstack the dishwasher? And that's when you find out you're incompatible. Because you have different ways of managing money, different ways of managing time, and different ways of stacking the dishwasher. Every time I stack the dishwasher, my wife comes along and restacks it behind my back. So you're incompatible. Now, Michelle Weiner-Davis says that's also a problem in a marriage. There's actually an asymmetry in desire. We're actually incompatible when it comes to sexual desire because you cannot avoid this. One partner is going to want sex more often than the other partner. And the partner who wants it less, and it could equally likely be the man or the woman, now has the power in the relationship, now controls how much sex happens in the relationship. And this other partner may resent this, may be frustrated, may be angry, may be hurt, and words are said, and now these words hurt this person even more, and they withdraw, now you're definitely getting no sex at all in the relationship. So these are the problems, these are reasons why sex sort of fades in a committed, loving relationship. So what are some ways forward? And here are three suggestions. Number one comes again from Michelle Weiner-Davis. She says, just do it. Just do it. She says what usually should happen in, in a loving relationship is this. You have the desire for sex. And that makes that leads to arousal, and then arousal leads to sex. But usually in a long-term committed relationship, the desire just fades, as we've talked about. So there's no desire, so there's no arousal, so there's no sex now. She says in a marriage, we need to flip it around, and because we get rewired in marriage, that we should just start having sex, and that will lead to arousal, and that will lead to desire. And suddenly you rediscover, hey... This is actually fun. We actually enjoy doing this. And the Bible says the same thing. This is Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 writing to married couples. He says, don't deprive each other of sexual relations. Unless you both agree for a limited time so you can pray, but afterward you should come together again. So Paul is saying, hey, you married couples, come on. You need to be having more sex. Don't deprive each of each other of sex. Hey, you, maybe you've just forgotten how much you enjoy it. Just do it. You remember how much you enjoy it. You say, hey, it's not that much fun. No, once you get together, it will be fun. And think about it not so much as you trying to gain pleasure, but this way of giving pleasure and serving the person that you love. So come, don't deprive each other of sexual relations. And I love the next bit, unless you both agree for limits of time so you can pray. So you imagine these Christians have just said to Paul, but Paul, time out, time out, time out. We want to read the Bible together instead. That's much more holy than sex, surely. And Paul sort of makes this concession. Oh, all right. Okay, if you want, you can just stop, read the Bible, pray, but it's for a limited time only. I want you to set the oven timer, uh, 10 minutes, and after that, get back together again. Just do it. So that's the first suggestion, just do it. The second suggestion is there are behaviours we can do that can reignite the passions. 
Terry Orbach in her book Finding Love Again says, well, there are behaviours we can do that can reignite the passions. These are behaviours such as um, doing something new. So find ways of doing new things together, like go to a new restaurant in a new part of town or sign up for an, a new activity like a cooking class or a dancing class. Also do naughty things together, like be caught out in the rain without an umbrella when you knew it was going to rain anyway. Or during the day, just send flirty little messages to each other. Now, my wife's name is Stephanie, and the surgeon, one of the surgeons I work for, his secretary's name is Stephanie as well. So one day during the day, I sent a little text to my wife, Stephanie, and it went to the wrong Stephanie. And she replied back, "Uh, I think you meant this text was someone else. And I went, oh, thank goodness, it was only the traffic report. Phew. Okay, so we got out of that one. But... So just little naughty things together and then mystery and surprise. Like just turn up at the other person's work and take them out for lunch. Maybe a surprise party, a surprise trip somewhere or do something physical together like jog, go to the gym, a rock climb. Do something dangerous like jump out of a plane, abseil or watch a scary movie or do something that makes you laugh like watch a comedy show or watch a funny movie but there are activities we can do that can reignite the passions now remember Kirk Patterson who taught me Old Testament at Bible College he said it's funny old people was always thinking young people can learn from them but here in sex and romance this is where old people can learn from young people the behaviours we can do that can reignite the passions and the third thing I would suggest is this Oh, well, hang on. So, so this is exactly what the Bible says. Do things that reignite the passions. Ecclesiastes 9. Go, eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with joyful heart for God has already approved what you do. Meaning go, go on a date night. Do something that reignites the passions. Eat, drink, do something new, surprise, mystery. Go on an adventure together. And then the next one, always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Meaning Put some effort in how you look. Guys, fellas, get out of the tracksuit pants, for heaven's sake. And put something in your hair. Buff it up. Style it, for heaven's sake. And wash yourselves. Make yourselves smell nice. Clean your fingernails. Use um, some soaps, lotions, perfumes. Just make yourself a bit more presentable, please. And then the final one, and enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of this. And I think the better translation is all the days of this brief life that God has given you under the sun. Meaning this is good. A marriage is a gift from God. Enjoy it. And I think it points out, it's only for a short time only. I mean, I've been married 19 years now, but I'm just amazed how it went so quickly the last 19 years. It really is a brief time we have together on earth. And so the advice is enjoy life with your partner. Uh, this is a gift from God. It's for limits of a brief time only. So just enjoy it. Uh, God has given you, you know, this life to enjoy. And then the third tip is this. Now, I remember watching American Beauty. It won Best Movie um, at the Oscars a few years ago. And it's a story of a married couple, Kevin Spacey and Annette Benning. And by now, they've been married for 10, 20 years. And all the passion has gone in their, their marriage. It's just a usual, long-term, committed relationship with no sex happening. But one night, they're in the living room. And for some reason, the passions are reignited. They come together, clothes come off, and they're just about to embrace and make wild, passionate love when suddenly... She puts the brakes on it because... She's worried they're going to mess up the couch. And at that moment, I thought, I totally get you. 
I get you on this one because you know sex as good as it is. Come on, we're talking about a thousand dollar couch here. This is the Asian in me now. You know we need to look after. This is meant to last us another ten or fifteen years, and you don't want to scratch scratch the floor. And so again, we have to juggle these dual desires in in our marriage. On the one hand, we need to be wild, but we need to be practical. We need to be crazy, but come on, we need to be uh, sensible at the same time. How do we juggle these two competing desires? I think the Bible hints at it. Ecclesiastes 4 says two are better than one because they have a good return for their labour. So that's the business part of the relationship. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. So that's the companionship part of the relationship. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. That's a sex part of the relationship. So how can you do all these things in your relationship? Well, one may be overpowered, so one person is not going to be able to do it. Well, two can defend themselves. So yeah, as a couple, you might be able to do it. But a quarter, three strands is not quickly broken. So you're going to need help here. You're going to need a third person to come along and help. Because we're juggling these desires to be safe but dangerous at the same time. And the Bible says Jesus can be our security and our adventure in our life. Because Jesus says, I will be your security. Come to me and I will give you rest. I will be your security, your safety, your home. You can... <sighs> feel settled with me because I will give you rest. But at the same time, Jesus, I will be your danger, your excitement, your adventure. He says, come, follow me. Give up everything you have and follow me. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. Foxes have holes to sleep in, but you have nowhere to sleep if you come follow me. Now, that's a wild, crazy adventure. So Jesus, both safety and adventure, meaning... Our marriage and our partner don't have to provide the safety and adventure for us. I remember a book, and I put it this way. Your wife is not the adventure. Jesus is the adventure, and she's the partner you take along on the adventure. See, if we try to make our wife the adventure, she would never be exciting enough. The passions fade after one or two years, and then we will blame her, and then we blame ourselves. Oh, if only I was more exciting. Maybe if I was more witty, sophisticated, charming, more learned, oh, then this marriage would work. No, 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 we're asking too much of our partner, of ourselves, and of the marriage if we're wanting our marriage to be safety and adventure. But if Jesus is the adventure then we can take our partner along with us on the adventure and, and they can just be who they are, no more, no less. And we can enjoy them just as partner and just enjoy the marriage as it is. A good gift from God, but no more and no less. And Jesus provides the safety and adventure that we're looking for. So original question was this, how can we have extraordinary sex when love has gone cold? And I've given some suggestions, some ways forward there. I'll just end with this example. This is Breaking Bad, episode one, season one, uh, the marriage between Walter White and his wife Skylar. And in the very first episode, it ends like this. It's the end of the day, they're in bed together, Walter looks at his wife Skylar, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, what do you think, how about it? And she responds by just making love to him. Oh, well, actually, it, it was just sex, and it was just cringeworthy because was, there was no love. There was no passion. There was no romance. It was just mechanical. It was, but there was no love. There was no joy. And you just cringe at the moment. Because somehow deep, deep down we feel like, no, no, sex, 
and romance belong together. But where do we get this idea from? Because anthropologists like Helen Fisher, and she's not a Christian, so she's got no Christian agenda, says the human species is unique amongst all the animal species and we're the only ones who think sex and love and romance should belong together. Because in the animal world, sex is just sex. It's just a way of propagating your DNA, surviving your species uh, but for humans, we say, no, 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 we are more than just molecules. We're more than just an animal on, on this planet. And sex is more than just uh, molecules. It's more than just neurochemicals. It's more than just passing on DNA. It's more than survival. There should be love. There should be romance. But where do we get this idea that sex, love, and romance belong together? Well, the Bible says God uses sex, love, and romance as a model of his love for us. My boys every day were showing me, Daddy, 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 look, I've just made a car out of Lego. And I would say, yep, 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 that is a great car. But come on, it's just a model. It's not a real car. And it's the same with sex, love and romance. No matter how much sex we're having or not having, no matter how much we're not enjoying or enjoying sex, sex, love and romance, according to the Bible, is just a model of the greater love the greater romance, the greater passion that God has for us. And like any loving, passionate relationship, uh, we then need to love God back, trust him at his words, and be just as exclusive for this God as he is for us. Uh, We've got about 10 minutes. All right, first question for you, mate. I'm 63 and married for over 30 years, and the passion is as strong as ever. So I do not necessarily accept your initial premise. In fact, sex in a loving, committed relationship is far more exciting and satisfying than the messy, lust-driven sexual relationships I experienced before finding my partner for life. You have not mentioned the Song of Song, Song of Solomon. Do you want to comment? Question mark. Sure. Thanks for the comment. Well, 20-minute talk. We can't mention everything about sex and love and romance in the Bible. But it's a very interesting comment because they, they do say, you know, the sex does get better the older you get, which is counterintuitive. But I remember Tim, Timothy Keller explained it best this way. It all comes down to our anthropology. What is our anthropology? Are we just body or is this, are we a soul body as well? Are we just body, like matter, molecules, or are we an animated soul body? And, and if we are both soul and body, as the Bible says we are, then sex connects us with the, our partner at both soul and body. And so often this is where Christians get it wrong, because they think we're just soul and the body doesn't matter. And that's what Paul tries to correct in 1 Corinthians 7. No, the body does matter, and pleasures are gifts from God for us to enjoy. So it's not just the soul reading the Bible and praying together. No, you should have sex together as well. But in maybe the non-Christian world, where we're just body and no soul, then we're just only connecting at a bodily, physical level, but there's no soul in it, and, and... they, they say that's actually the problem we have sex when you're young because you're so physical. Uh, uh, you know, when, that's when your hormones are at their peak. It's more body than soul when you're making love. And so that's why the older you get, uh, the more the soul kicks in rather than the body and the more aware you are that this is serving rather than gaining, giving rather than getting pleasure. And that, that's why it, it does get better the older you get.
What does the Bible say to single people? Re-love, etc. Alright, so I've given us part of the human story, which is the sex, love and romance. But, uh, but we know in the Bible there's more to that. Because uh, more to the human story than just sex, love and romance. Because Jesus himself was single, and yet somehow Jesus held up as the, the new human. So somehow the new model human that we're all going to be recreated in the image of was a single guy. And Paul himself was single. And so we know there's more to the human story than that. And also means that there's more to um, community and belonging than just sex, love and marriage. Because even people who are in a loving, committed relationship, as we found, can be just as lonely as single people. So sex, love and marriage, as highly as it's held up in the Bible, is not the total solution for the need for love and belonging. So our need for love and belonging seems to be found just as much in community as it is in a committed relationship. And also we have a vertical need for love and belonging. So again, it's interesting that um, Jesus says, in heaven there'll be no marriage. And I don't know what that means. Like I would imagine if you had 20 theologians, they have 20 different ways of explaining that. So I'm not going to add a 21st explanation to that. But somehow it means love, sex and marriage, which we have right now, is only a model of a greater reality to come. So so this is only part of the human story. There's so much more to our human story than just this. Great talk, but did Jesus really express any interest in our sex lives? Except from perhaps do not commit adultery or look lustfully at someone. Okay. I think, uh, so, so it's interesting that in the book of John, the very first miracle is him at a wedding. So I think that's already God has a very high view of sex, relationship and wine. So I, I, if you've heard me before, I think it's just fascinating that that is the first miracle in the book of John where there's going to be, because there's going to be consummation that night. There's marriage, and again, there's wine, which we should not overlook. And so I say it's interesting how the very first command in the Bible in Genesis is for humans to have sex, and a lot of it, because they had to fill the earth. So that's a lot of sex. So um, you've got to multiply and fill the earth. That's end game. So that's a lot of sex. So that's God saying you've got to have a lot of sex. And the very first miracle in the New Testament is wine at a wedding. So this is sex and wine. God is the party God. So if ever we're worried about, oh, if I follow this Jesus, I'm going to miss out on pleasure. Now, it's the opposite. If I don't follow Jesus, I'm going to miss out on something here. And, and God is very pro-sex, very pro-wine. Obviously, there are guidelines to maximize pleasure, minimize harm, ensure public good, all that sort of thing. But somehow, I think Jesus, by being at that wedding and, and giving the excess of wine. See, the symbolism there is amazing because the original Greek says, oh, um... You know, the, the guests haven't just drunk enough. The guests actually drunk at the wine, at, at, the, at the reception. The guests, are, they've drunk too much wine. They've run out of wine because they've drunk too much. And then Jesus comes and now gives them more wine, more good wine, and too much good wine. Like, like imagine all these Grange hermitages being all half opened and, and left after the wedding. That's exactly what Jesus just done to people who are already drunk, who can't tell whether it's the $5... Uh, clean skin or a Grange Hermitage if he's given them the, the, the Grange and so somehow this is the God of excess of luxury and I think by there he's saying he's very pro-sex very pro-marriage and very pro-wine um, How is Jesus an adventure? 
well, one, Jesus says, I am the truth, the way, and the life. And often Christians emphasize Jesus being the truth. He's someone to believe in. He's a proposition. But the New Testament has much more of an emphasis. He's the way. He's the life. And the original followers of Jesus were known as those who followed the way. So um, it's more, much more about being on a journey with Jesus. And Jesus' call to discipleship wasn't believe in these propositional truths and pray this prayer, which I'm sure is part of it, but it was come on, deny yourself, take, your, take up your cross and follow me. So you're going to come on a journey with me. And that's much more how we understand discipleship. It's much more of a journey and it's a, it's a mystery. It really is an adventure. And, and then the Bible uses words like struggle, adversity, suffering, affliction. So this is going to be a wild, crazy ride with Jesus where we don't know where he's going to take us. Sure. Well, what am I going to... Well, my brief offhand knowledge of Song of Solomon is, you know, this is... um, It's very, very wild, erotic stuff in there. And, you know, the, the church has had a lot of problems. This is, this is a metaphor for God and his love for us. But I think, you know, on a surface reading, it is what it is. It's a very pro reading. What are you wanting me to say? Like, am I missing something in Song of Solomon? Oh, it is extreme. Oh, I should have gone to Song of Solomon. I know, okay. So the comment is, why do you not go to Song of Solomon for today's talk? Well, because we're working on a series for Ecclesiastes. So it's more, it's, this, is my, this is my limited mandate. You can't criticise me on what I did with what I had. <laughs> the recording that you have just listened to is from the City Bible Forum. For more information about City Bible Forum events in your city, or to order other talks, please visit citybibleforum.org.